I don't need you. I don't need anyone. How many times in movies or on television shows or in books and stories have we heard somebody say something like that in a proclamation of their own independence? It's almost cliché. It's especially something that we hear from young folks who are, who are trying to branch out, and, and rightly so, trying to branch out and spread their wings and get out from under the, the rule of mom and dad. And yet all too often, that mindset can then become a habit with which we face all of our lives. Or even worse, it can become a habit with which we face our relationship with God, declaring to Him that I don't need you. I don't need anyone. But as we walk with God and as we're focusing on relationships with God this month, I hope that what we learn is that if we have any need, we need God. I want to examine tonight why we need God. Exactly what do we need God for? Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious and mighty God in heaven, you are awesome and powerful. And we lift you up because you are worthy to be praised. You are the God who has created this world and it is by your strength and your might that it is sustained. You have given us life. You've given us hope. You've given us meaning. Father, it's by your power that we are strengthened. It's through your grace that we have forgiveness and righteousness. Father, we look forward to being on your side and receiving the victory in the end so that we might have eternal life. You are awesome and majestic, and powerful. We cast down our golden crowns before you, proclaiming that you are worthy. You are holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Forgive us because we have sinned and have become unholy in your sight. Forgive us because that too many times we've relied upon our own strength and pursued our own path. Forgive us for that, Father. And help us to grow and to turn away from the tempter's traps. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Before we begin to look at why we need God, I think there's one principle that we have to make sure we understand. There are all kinds of views that people have of God in our modern time. They imagine God in, in many different ways, even if they don't specifically word or explain how they feel about God, yet the way they approach God demonstrates it. There are some folks that imagine God to be like a, a giant Santa Claus up in heaven who is there to provide nice things for the good little boys and girls and for the naughty little boys and girls. Well, not so much. Some view God as a cosmic vending machine. He's the one to which they can turn whenever they have wants and desires to ask Him for anything they want, and then they complain about Him when He's broken, when He doesn't give them what they ask. Some folks view God like a, a great big grandpa in the sky, who's all bluster and talk, who'll talk big, big, who'll growl and grumble, and yet when it's all said and done, we'll just pull all the grandkids together to sit them on his lap and give them a great big hug. On the other hand, some folks view God as a giant, tyrannical despot who is just waiting for the moment that somebody will step out of line so that he can wreak havoc in their lives in judgment. But perhaps one of the most popular views of God today, and it's well-intentioned, it's well-meaning, but it's just as wrong as the others, is that view that God was somehow a lonely God. 
that God somehow was just this lonely wanderer in heaven who was so desperately needing fellowship and relationship, and therefore He used His great power to create the world so that we humans could come into existence and provide for God that great needed fellowship and relationship. And what it really says is that God is somehow dependent upon us. And the thing that we need to understand, before we start talking about how much we need God, we need to firmly understand that God does not need us. God did not create us because He needed something that we could provide for Him. Paul makes this clear in Acts 17, 24 and 25. (coughs) Excuse me. In Acts 17, 24 and 25, Paul on Mars Hill says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything. He didn't create us because He needed anything, and He didn't create us because He needed us. Psalm 50 and verse 12, all the way back in the Old Testament, God told the Israelites, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. What's His point? His point is, look, if I needed something, you couldn't provide it. There's nothing that God needs from us. Now, yes, God wants us. He wants fellowship and relationship with us. He wants our service, but it is not because God needs us. It's very important that we understand this, because if we don't, if we begin to believe that God needs us, then we might begin to believe that God owes us for providing His needs. We might become like that Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 and verse 11, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And even though this prayer begins with, God, I thank you, it sure sounds like the Pharisee is saying, God, you should thank me. Look at the self-centeredness the self-satisfaction, the self-assurance that this man has that he is somehow giving God what he needs. That God somehow owes him. You just almost get that feeling of, God, you are just so lucky to have a servant like me on your side. And yet the Pharisee was wrong. And Jesus says he went away unjustified. In Job 41 and verse 11, Job 41 and verse 11, God declared, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God says there's nothing that we can give that He owes us for. There's nothing that we get that He needed and couldn't do for Himself. And so we had to fill in the gap, and now He owes us and He needs to repay it. That That just can't happen. God doesn't need us. 
And yet, God loves us. God wants us to be in relationship with Him. God wants us to come to Him, serving Him. But here's the very interesting thing that we learn from all of that. All of that that God wants for us is not because God needs it, but because God knows that we need it. We need to understand that everything that God has done for us, everything that God has asked of us, has been about what God knows that we need. And He loves us so much that He has provided those needs. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, we see God's choice to bring us into relationship with Him. He wanted us in a relationship with Him so much because He knew we needed it that He sent His Son to die for us. In Colossians 1 and verse 18, it says, He, that is Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. That to me is so amazing. God doesn't need us, but He wants us and loves us so much that He was willing to send His Son to die to provide what we need from Him. And everything He has done has been about our needs. So, why do we need God? I'm going to give you a list of some things. There's no doubt that this list is not exhaustive. I'm sure if we wanted to mine the depths, excuse me, if we wanted to mine the depths of everything that we need God for, we could be here for time and eternity. But I just want us to think about eight major things for which we need God. That without Him, we would be nothing. First, we need God for life. Acts chapter 17 and verse 28. Again, Paul on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28 says, even your own poets have said this, says that in Him we live and move and have our very being, as even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed His offspring. In Him we live and move and have our very being. Without God, we could not be here. It is God's creative power that has brought all of this into existence and that has given us life. Beyond even the general creation, we recognize what it says in Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, talking about us as individuals within this creation, David said in Psalm 139, 13, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. God formed our inward parts. God formed us. He didn't just set the creation in motion and and then we came along. God formed you. And wonderful are His works. But it's also by His power that we are sustained. By Him we live and by Him we move. It's by His great power that this creation continues to exist. Matthew chapter 5. And verse 45, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, Jesus says of God, if He tells us that we need to love our enemies and do good to them, He says, in that way we'll be sons of the Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why is it that every morning the sun comes up 
It's not just because it's there and it just keeps going. It's because God makes it happen. Without God's sustaining power, it would all fall apart. Why does the rain come? Because God sends it. That's God's work. He sustains the life. Marita told me of a quote recently. I, I, we don't know where it came from, so I can't give it proper uh, attribution. But I think it's a great statement. We need to remember that it's His air that we breathe. So think about that. It's His air that we breathe. We need God for life. But we also need God for meaning, for purpose. Why are we here? What's my purpose in life? What is the answer to the great question of life, the universe, and everything? Without God, there is no answer. It's God that provides meaning to our existence. We can look in the book of Ecclesiastes and we find Solomon's search for meaning. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, it points out that Solomon pursued meaning and significance in life through pleasure, through wisdom, through folly, through works, through possessions, through legacy and descendants. And as he pursued meaning and significance in Ecclesiastes 2.17, he came to this conclusion. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. Without God, that's life. That's life under the sun. That's life without giving consideration to what's beyond the sun. That's why without giving consideration to the fact that there's more than just this life. It's meaningless. It's vanity. It's striving after wind. It's pointless. But once we begin to consider the spiritual, once we begin to consider God and His will, then Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will He prolong His days like a shadow, because He does not fear before God. See, once God's in the picture, there is me. There's something more. There's a reason to live, and there's a reason to care about what we do in this life. And Solomon concluded in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the meaning, this is the purpose. But without God, there is none. We need God for forgiveness. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 says, Ephesians 2 verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 6 and 23 says that because of the sin, the wages of sin is death. We need the sin remitted. We need it taken away from us. We need forgiveness. But we can't receive forgiveness except we receive it from God Himself. There in Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, after He said we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, the text goes on to say, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And again in Ephesians chapter 2, if we continue reading there in verse 4, It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It is God's grace, it is God's gift that gives us forgiveness. We could not earn it. We cannot merit it. We cannot work long and hard enough that God finally says, okay, now I owe you forgiveness for all the things that you did wrong. We can only have forgiveness from God. If we want forgiveness, we need God. But we also need Him for righteousness. Now, a lot of times we might think that those two things are synonymous. That's just not true. Forgiveness does not equal righteousness. Forgiveness is the means by which God grants us righteousness. Forgiveness is the means by which God takes our sins away so that we might be righteous. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It points out that the only people in all the world that will ever be satisfied, that will ever be content, that will ever actually truly accomplish their goals, are the ones who hunger desperately for righteousness. If you hunger for wealth or fame or power or influence or any other thing, you'll always be dissatisfied you'll always fall short. There will always be more that you want. It will always be something right around the corner that you think is just right within your grasp. But you miss it. But when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, God says then we'll be satisfied. But it's not that we'll be satisfied because if we hunger and thirst for righteousness enough, if we want it enough, then we will white-knuckle our way to righteousness It'll be because if we hunger and thirst for righteousness enough, we'll be willing to do anything that God wants us to do so that He'll give us righteousness. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul talks about his goal and righteousness. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, Excuse me, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Paul said he was willing to give up all things in order to know Jesus so that he could have the righteousness that comes from God. He says it's not my own righteousness from keeping the law. It's the righteousness that comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was looking for. And if we're looking for that, if we're hungering for that, if we want righteousness, we need God. We need God for strength. As Americans, we have a problem. We're independent. We don't need anybody. We don't need anything. We've pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We've brought ourselves along. We've made our own way. We've blazed our own trail. We've cut our own path. We're just that good. We're just that strong. Maybe every once in a while we need a little nudge to push us over the edge, but we're even embarrassed to admit that. But we certainly haven't really needed anyone. And because of that, we as American Christians in general have become nominal and weak. Most of us are unwilling to step up to the plate to anything that's more challenging than making it to assemblies. Many Christians fall by the wayside because it just gets too hard. There have been some that have been able to just white-knuckle their way through a lot of hardships, but after a while, they just give up because they just finally decide, I just can't take it anymore, or it's just not worth it. I'll tell you what I've become convinced of. I'm, I'm convinced that God is going to push and push and push us until we finally come to that recognition that we are weak. And the strength only comes from God. And at that point, we're going to make a choice. That choice is either going to be to give up, throw our hands up and say it's not worth it, or it's going to be to finally throw ourselves completely on God as the one from whom all strength comes. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, Paul wrote, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As long as I continue to think that I am strong, I'm always going to be weak. I'm not ever going to be able to do the things that God wants to do through me. But the moment I realize that I am the weak one, I can't do this on my own. I can't accomplish anything. God's the one that's going to have to work. As soon as I recognize that, that is when God's strength empowers me. And we can say along with Paul in Philippians 4.13, I can do how many things? Through Him who strengthens me? All things. Through Him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. If we want strength, we need God. We need God for peace. In this life, we face storm after storm after storm. Whether it's childhood or adolescence or young married life or young single life or parenting or middle age or the senior years. Something's always hammering away at us from some direction. 
Whether we're talking about life in the neighborhood or at home or on the job or at school or even in the church, there's always some kind of strife somewhere, something going on that troubles us. Satan is attacking us on every hand. And perhaps this is why anxiety disorders are some of the most prevalent mental disorders that our nation is facing. Forty million adults face some form of anxiety disorder. That's one in six. Actually, it's a little bit more than one in six. And no doubt that some of those cases are caused by medical issues that, that need to be dealt with through a medical means. But I can't help but think that some of them are caused because people have a wall between them and God. They don't know God, or they haven't drawn near to God. Because I remember what it says in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, and verse seven, or verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This text says that God promises His peace to those who cast their cares upon Him, who think on the excellent and thought-worthy things and who practice what they've seen in Scripture. The God of peace will be with us and His peace which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds. If we want to have peace, we need God. We also need God for victory. To overcome in this battle of life that we face. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're fighting in a battle that we can't possibly hope to win. We're fighting against enemies that are so far superior to us, we can't possibly hope to beat them. That's why Paul had said, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need God. We need His armor. We need His strength because that is the only way that we're going to overcome. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 57 says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives us the victory over sin, the victory over Satan, and in this context, the victory over death because of that. If we want to overcome, we need God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Because of our faith and our relationship with God, we can overcome the world. We can overcome Satan. We can overcome sin. And we can be victorious even in death. If we want victory in this gargantuan battle of life that we're facing day in and day out, if we want victory there, we need God. And finally, we need God for eternal life. We began this list by pointing out that for our physical lives, we need God. But far surpassing that is not just our need for life here, but our need for life hereafter. And we can only have that through God. We've already read Romans 6.23 that said the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've already read the passage in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul talked about his goal to know Jesus so that he could have righteousness. Do you remember why? Verse 11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul recognized that all this is about something more than all this. He wanted the resurrection. In John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, Jesus foretold what was coming. He said, Do not marvel at this in John 5, 28. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We want to be those who have done good who come out to the resurrection of life. And yet, of course, we've already recognized that you and I can't do that much good. We can't do enough good to earn the resurrection of life. We know from the rest of Scripture that we only have that kind of righteousness by God. Isn't that what we already want? If we want eternal life in the hereafter, then we need God in the here and now. We need God. God doesn't need us. But we need Him. And we need Him desperately. And how grateful we must be that God really is there for us. He didn't have to be. Because He owes us nothing. And yet by His grace, by His love, He is here for us. And we can have these things. Let us throw ourselves on God's mercy. Because we need it.